It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931-381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And welcome into the Virtual Bible Study for July 2nd, 2009. You're live with the Virtual Bible Study tonight. We're glad we're on your computer and we hope you have your Bibles ready to study along with us as this is a Bible study group on the Internet in which we direct the discussion, but you participate via your phone calls or your emails. And so we hope you will take a minute to be a part of the program tonight. 877-381-4567 is the number to call. It's toll-free. And the email address to use is questions at collegeview.com. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here tonight. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you tonight for the Virtual Bible Study. Our sign says, live, interactive, Internet only. So all that's true. We're live. And we want interactive participation. We want our listeners to participate with us, and you can only do it on the Internet. All right. So join in on the discussion tonight. We're also cluttered on the virtual Bible study, but not for much longer. Yeah. Hopefully. Our good friend Gordon is working on a new desk set for us, and we can get some of this clutter. And I saw it this week, and it's very snazzy. We're going to look like we're going to look like the evening news, maybe, uh, with a, a professional set to set behind. Yes, and uh, so you better. We would encourage you to tune in for that. We've got an interesting topic planned for tonight, a fundamental topic. Yeah, and one that we've not really talked about before on the virtual Bible study. I got an email from our friend Jim in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, who said, uh, "Here's an idea for the virtual Bible study: the lost books of the Bible." Uh, he said someone recently asked him a. Uh, about a book he got from Reader's Digest concerning the lost books of the Bible. And then uh, he went on to mention what some of those were, including the uh, apocryphal books that are sometimes included in the Catholic Bible. Uh, He says, I believe there's another book out there which mentions upwards upwards of 20 supposedly missing books from the Bible uh, and so forth. He says the Mormons, of course, believe that certain things have been lost from the Bible. Uh, and then he says, the idea always being that we what we have as the Bible really is a prejudiced religious book put together by men, and sometimes their prejudice causes them to exclude other valuable books. And then the recent Da Vinci Code movie, uh, uh, and people talked about the Gospel of Barnabas or the Gospel of Judas and so forth, uh, might be a topic that worthy of discussion, he suggests, and I think he's right. We need to probably talk about those things, Jacob. And we hope to talk with you about them tonight, and so... We'll be talking about how we got the New Testament, and then we'll examine apparent contradictions or alleged contradictions. Yeah, that's what I thought we should talk about. We, first, we want to talk about how do we get the New Testament. We've, we, put, we put all of our trust and faith in the New Testament as God's guide for our lives. This is, this is his rule book for us to live by. How do we know it's the right book? How do we know that, first of all, how do we know it was given by God? And then secondly, how do we know it was preserved accurately for us? And how do we know that we've got it all and that everything, first, is everything in there that ought to be in there and is is there not anything extra that should be should be excluded? Those kinds of questions. 
earlier today to our update list, Jake, if I sent out some questions. And uh, if you are not on that update list, send us a message, questions at collegeview.com, and just put add me to the list. We'll put you on our list. On Thursday, we send out these questions about our topic and about what we're going to be discussing, ask you to start providing some feedback. Today I ask, uh, there are 27 books in our New Testament. Why were these selected and others omitted? Now, how would you answer somebody's question? I, my, my guess is that everybody who's listening to us tonight is a Bible believer. If there's any non-Bible believers listening, great. We're glad you're out there. But my guess is that all who are listening are Bible believers. But maybe we need to back up a step and say, I believe in the Bible, but is it is it accurate? Is it all there? Is everything there that ought to be there? And is there only in there what should be in there? These are the questions then. Why were these 27 books selected for inclusion in the New Testament and others omitted? And then secondly, are there any missing books of the Bible? That's what we want to ask. And then number three, we're going to get to this in the last part of our study tonight, Jacob. What rules would we employ to study any alleged contradictions of the Bible? Now, we're not going to try to deal with specific contradictions. And so, uh, you know, if, if you have some that are worrying you, uh, you might send them in, but we're not going to try to deal with specific contradictions because a lot of times those kind of things take some some research and some study because there are some places where you have to kind of dig through the the information to get get an answer. I don't believe there are any confirmed contradictions in the Bible, but sometimes people will pose a question that you know would take a little while to study. We're not going to try to deal with those specifically in our study tonight, but we want to sort of set forth some rules as to how we might resolve any any posed contradictions of the Bible. That'll be towards the end of the hour, so we want to stay tuned for that. We'll talk about alleged contradictions and what you can do. And what rules would you use? If someone said, here's a place where the Bible contradicts, what what rules would you use to try to resolve those contradictions? Okay, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. And as always, any Bible question or comment is fair game for discussion tonight. So if you Mm -hmm. want to and we might we might not get to it tonight, but at least you can send it in or call us. And, we, and, sure. and if we don't get to it tonight, we'll try to get to it in a future broadcast. All right. Jacob, don't forget, we've got a chat room window open, and uh, you can uh, get in the chat room and, and join the discussion there. As we discuss, you can be discussing in the chat room. That's an unmoderated chat room, so behave yourselves in there. Uh, but uh, I think several listeners are enjoying having the chat room option. And you're Twittering on uh, Twitter. If you yeah. are a, a member of Twitter, you can sign up to receive virtual Bible study updates. We get we get an update out there. And in fact, I sent one out just a few minutes ago reminding people that we we're about to get started. What's your username on Twitter? V, uh, VBS Questions. VBS Questions at Twitter. Mm-hmm. All right, and we're also on Facebook. And I noted that some people have joined the Facebook group uh, this past week. So good, if you want to stay... Good in touch with your friends who are fans of the uh, the virtual Bible study and share the virtual Bible study with your friends, check us out on Facebook. I, I said that I was VBS Questions. That's our Gmail address is VBS Questions. Uh, let me look, Jacob. I'm, I'm well, you can I, think I'm just, I think we are the virtual Bible study on Twitter. Okay. We're, we're, the virtual, we're just the virtual Bible study on right. Twitter. And you can, uh, you can check us out on that, and you can update us on that after the break. We're talking about... How we got the New Testament, and it is important because uh, we're having a virtual Bible study here. We want to know that what we're studying, where it came from, and how we got it. So what do we know about the book of the New Testament? Did it uh, drop down on a golden parachute, or did someone uh, find it while they were out wandering around in the woods? Well, you know, there are some remarkable stories out there in the religious world about how God got messages to men. The Mormons, for instance, believe that, that Joseph Smith was guided 
to discover some golden plates that had been engraved in an ancient hieroglyphic kind of writing. And an angel came and helped him translate those golden plates. Then the angel took the golden plates away. Nobody else ever saw them. But uh, that, you know, the, the kind of a, an amazing or remarkable story about how they supposedly got their book. The Bible books are not of that sort. We're not saying that there was um, magical plates or anything like that. But we do believe that the, the Bible was given by inspiration, all of it. And we believe that the, 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 the books that are found in our Bible were inspired by God. Let's start this way. First of all, we know that the New Testament wasn't written by a single man. Not one single man sat down and wrote it all out. There were at least eight different writers of the New Testament. When you think about them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then you talk about the Apostle Paul, uh, James, and so forth. The, couple, uh, the, the book of Hebrews, we're not, we can't be definitively sure who the author of that was, but we, we have some, maybe some, some good ideas of that. But there were at least eight different men who wrote the New Testament. Now, those books weren't either, they were not written all at one time either, Jacob. They were written over a period of about uh, 20 to 50 years, depending on how you date the, the, the book of Revelation. Uh, so they were written over a, a span of time by different individuals. What we also know, and I don't know if we all, uh, I mean, we we got to be upfront about this. We also know that we don't even have all of the writings of even those men we know who were authors of New Testament documents. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, at verse 9, Paul said, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Now notice, Paul, in the book that we call 1 Corinthians, the first epistle to the Corinthians, indicates that he had previously written to the Corinthians in something before 1 Corinthians. Paul had written to the Corinthians and said, don't company with fornicators. Whatever that communication was, it was a written communication. We don't have it. It's not preserved for us. We've got another reference to something similar in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul tells the Colossians there. In verse 16 of chapter 4, and when this epistle is read among you, cause it that it also that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now, that may be a reference to a, a book that we do have. Or, yeah, that may. A lot of people think that's a reference probably to the book of Ephesians. Okay. But we don't know could, for sure. Could be it could, could, yeah, it epistle. could be another writing. So, so we don't have all of the books that were written, for instance, by the Apostle Paul. We don't have all of his communications, at least. And so that raises this question. How did the books that are in the New Testament get there? Who decided which ones should be included? Why were others excluded? And do we have all the books that we ought to have? That's the question. Um, And so basically these are questions that involve, here's the word, Jacob. The word is canon, C-A-N-O-N, the canon of Scripture. This is not canon like you shoot a cannon, shoot an artillery shell. This is canon, C-A-N-O-N, and that word defined literally means a standard or a system of rules. And so what is the standard by which the books were included in the New Testament? What are the rules that were applied to say this book deserves to be there and other books do not deserve to be there? Uh, and, and, And when we talk about the canon of scriptures, what we're saying is that certain writings had to adhere to uh, these standards or rules uh, to be viewed as legitimate or authoritative. Now, back that up one step further back, and you ask the question, well, who set the rules? 
Uh, and and then you just, I mean, the ultimate question is, are our New Testaments complete and accurate? That's that's the question we got to ask, and that's an important question, because if you're if you're studying with someone, Jacob, and they ask you a question, you say, well, in the Book of Acts we read, and they, and they say, wait just a minute. Well, why why should I pay any attention to what's in the book of Acts? Or if you quote the book of Ephesians or the, the book of Philippians, and someone could ask you, well, you're quoting these books to me, but oh, so what? What These don't mean anything to me. Why, 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 are you, why are you putting your confidence in that? No, we cannot just act on the assumption that this is so. We need to do a little investigation and see if these books are legitimate and, and actually the word of God. And so this this idea of studying the canon of the scriptures is an important consideration and one that we need to spend some time talking about because, uh, you know, most of us, uh, I imagine, have grown up uh, accepting these things as true without question almost. And so it's 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 worth asking the question to try to figure it out. All right, let's go to a break. When we come back, we'll get into the subject. We'd like to hear from you. Give us a call. Let us know your thoughts. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. And we'll be back right after this. Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks it. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the virtual Bible study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Please join us here every Thursday night on the virtual Bible study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. My name is Jack Coleman, a member of the College View Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening to the virtual Bible study, and we hope you'll tell others about the program. We're always open to your feedback concerning topics for discussion and suggestions as how we can make the program more effective. Drop us a line at questions at collegeview.com or call us toll-free at 877-381-4567. Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the virtual Bible study tonight. We're glad you're part of it. We're talking about how we got the New Testament in this portion of the program. Towards the end of the hour, we'll talk about alleged contradictions and how we study our way through those and determine if they are, in fact, contradictions in the New Testament. We'd like to hear from you over the phone at 877-381-4567. That's toll-free. We pay the bill or send your questions or comments to questions at collegeview.com for inclusion in the program tonight. You talked about the fact that the Bible was not given to us all at once, but it was, in fact, inspired. The writers claim, with no exception, to be inspired and from God. Exactly right. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul said, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered to you. In other words, I delivered to you, but I got it from the Lord, Paul okay. said. All right, and Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, similarly, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. tells us there that the Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. All Scripture is from, the, from God. That's right, and the word inspiration there literally means 
God breathed. By inspiration of God could be translated literally God breathed. In other words, when we speak, we breathe out. To form words, we breathe out. And so that's how we speak, by breathing. And that's what God did. The Bible is as though spoken by God. He breathed it out. And we believe that every word is there because God intended it to be. He didn't just give the Apostle Paul, for instance, some some broad thought, you know, said, you know, here's here's an idea right about it. That's not the way inspiration was. He gave him the exact words that he wanted him to write in the original languages, of course. The, the Bible wasn't originally written in English, but in, for instance, when Paul wrote in the New Testament, he wrote in Greek, and in the Greek language, every word that he wrote was there because God wanted it to be there. And that's what we believe by inspiration. Now, when they did that, Jacob, the, the the product of their work was immediately acknowledged and accepted by those in the church. Notice in Acts 2, verse 42, the new Christians, it says, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They knew what the apostles' doctrine was. It was identifiable. In First in Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, For this cause also we thank God. This is First Thessalonians 2, 13. We thank God without ceasing because... When ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. When they received it, when they received the message from Paul, he said, you received it not as the word of men. It's not just my word. He said, you received it as it is in truth, the word of God. So the product of the work of these inspired men was acknowledged by the Christians immediately upon them doing this work. That it was that they were giving God's message. All right, so it was not uh, disputed in the time at which the book was written. When the Bible was written, it was accepted. They knew those early Christians knew who those inspired men were, and they acknowledged their writings as having come from God. And that has something to do with how we got the New Testament day. We'll continue the discussion of that. But we're going to go up to Syracuse, New York. And Calvin is listening to the Virtual Bible Study in New York tonight. Hello, Calvin. Welcome to the Virtual Bible Study. How are you doing today? We're doing great. That's good. Yeah, you gave a great uh, explanation in First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, as Paul uh, spoke about how he received the word. You know, and I want to read First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse 1 through 3, and say, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preach unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I deliver unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. So it's like, you know, the mailman, when he delivered the mail, his job is not to write the letter, it's to put it in the mailbox. So... Uh, That's right. So these these inspired writers were were writing what God told them to write. Exactly, and this is powerful. How though the um, books was written so far apart, but the scriptures does not contradict each other. And man could have wrote this book because uh, man cannot write something bad about himself. Versus all the uh, examples in the Bible. So exactly uh, right, Calvin. The scriptures are proved that the Bible is inspired by God and it's His confirmed word. Calvin, how did you find us in Syracuse, New York? Well, I uh, went to your website a couple of times um, while my days off, and then I I saved it in my bookmarks. So I remember tonight that you uh, you have the uh, radio broadcast at my time at eight o'clock Eastern time. So 
I'll just remember it and turn it on. Hey, Greg, we're glad you found us, Calvin. Tell others up there about the virtual Bible study. I, I think, yes, I would. And also, we just planned a, a new church, Northside Church of Christ, uh, the Wilson Road Church in Liverpool. All right. Well, well, we pray that a lot of good will, will happen up there in the kingdom of God. Thank you, sir. Thank, Thank you, Calvin. Stay warm in Syracuse tonight, Calvin. We definitely will. It's kind of rainy. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for calling, Kevin. We're glad to hear from you up in uh, Syracuse tonight, and uh, we're ready to hear from you. The phone lines are open, 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. Nick is in the chat room tonight, and he submits a couple passages that go along with what we're saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. And so... Uh, Paul was, again, claiming to ha- that the commandments uh, that he was writing were the commandments of the Lord. And then Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, For neither rece- I received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, Paul claiming that he was inspired and the things he gave us were the inspired word of God. Exactly right. And, and as we were saying, thank you, Nick. And as we were saying, uh, those writings were acknowledged by those early Christians. Uh, someone has accurately said, these writings were scripture. They were the word of God before the ink dried on the page. It didn't take a period of time for them to begin to be recognized at this level. You know, sometimes uh, that happens with things that maybe a statesman writes a, a message or delivers a message. And it, for instance, the Gettysburg Address. When Abraham Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address, the the journalists who were in the audience panned it. They thought it was horrible. You know, it was it was very brief. Uh, and, and they thought he'd done a bad job. Now, here we are, you know, about 150 years later, or not quite, but almost, and, you know, it's regarded as one of the greatest speeches ever given, but it took a, it took a while for it to, to reach that level of acceptance. That was not the case with the Scriptures. The Scriptures were acknowledged as the Word of God as soon as these inspired writers wrote down, before the ink dried on the page, it was considered to be the inspired Word of God. You've used that phrase several times on the virtual Bible study, before the ink dried on the page. And I believe President Obama is listening to the virtual Bible study. He used the same phrase in a press he conference did. not too long. Yes, he did. About Maybe the Constitution, li- I believe, before the ink was dry on it. So I think he's listening. Maybe he is. Maybe he is. I hope he is. If you're out there, President Obama, 877-381-4567 is the number you can call. The line's open, and we're ready to, ready to hear from you. Yeah. Now, now uh, let's let's follow that thought a little bit. How how these these scriptures were regarded by the early Christians immediately. Col- notice they began to circulate them among themselves. You read Jacob earlier, Colossians four sixteen. When this epistle, Paul's letter to the Colossians, when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. In other words, they were circulating these these uh, epistles around. To the different congregations. In First Thessalonians 5, verse 27, Paul said, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. Send it around. Circulate it. That was the idea. The, the writing, these writings were, ultimately, they began to be compiled into a single book. And I don't know if you know, Jacob, but there's some hint that that compilation process uh, may have begun as early as 115 A.D., shortly after the death of the apostles. There was already some effort underway to compile the things that they had written uh, into a single volume, much like we have today. Not not exactly like we have today, but that would lead to a bound volume like we have today. They valued it for what it was. They saw it for what it was, and so they were saving them, and they were duplicating them the way that they would duplicate. uh, Handwritten copies. Handwritten copies, and so they were passing them around, and the circulation began. Yeah. 
Notice, though, that they, they were regarded as Scripture immediately. I, here, here's a couple of, of, of verses that I'd like our listeners to pay close attention to. At about 65 A.D., Paul wrote 1 Timothy 5. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, and the date of this would be around 65 A.D., Paul said, For the Scripture says, The Scripture says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his hire. Well, he said, the scripture says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. That's Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. He's quoting Old Testament. But then he says, the laborer is worthy of his reward. Where's that found? That's actually found in Luke 10, verse 7. Uh, Jesus said, in the same house remain eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. So, Paul, in 65 A.D., Paul quoted what Luke had written. Luke didn't write that that many years earlier. He, Paul quoted what Luke wrote, and he called it Scripture. And again, that's just confirmation of the fact that as soon as these things were written, they were regarded to be the Word of God. In, in 66 A.D., about 66 A.D., Peter would have written the book we call Second Peter. And in verse 16, Second Peter 3, verse 16 Paul talked about some who are unlearned and unable—excuse uh, uh, me, unlearned and unstable—who rest uh, the things that Paul wrote as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. In other words, they take scripture, including the things Paul wrote. Peter said, and they rest them or they they, they twist them to their own destruction. Peter called Paul's writing scripture in 66 A.D. And so there there was no uh, evolution of thought concerning. These books, they were regarded immediately as having come from God, and, and they, were, they were kept and protected, and as you said, Jacob, duplicated and circulated because of their obvious value having come from God. Absolutely. Uh, certainly, Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 refers to Paul's writings as Scripture, uh, or compares it to, uh, includes it with the Scriptures by saying other Scriptures. I have a couple comments uh, from the chat room. Uh, from some uh, users that are listening there tonight, uh, heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never pass away. We agree with that. And then we have one God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past by, to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, referencing Hebrews chapter 1. And uh, we appreciate those comments tonight. We're getting close to a break. Let's go ahead and take this week's uh, bullet point, and then we'll come back and continue the discussion on how we got the New Testament. The phone line is open at 877-381-4567. The email is available to you, questions at collegeu.com. Why don't you review those questions that we're discussing tonight? Uh, we're, right now we're talking about the 27 books of the New Testament. Why were these selected and other writings omitted, and are there any missing books of the Bible? We'll talk about those questions on the other side of this week's bullet point. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. Do you wonder why things are done the way they are? Do you have questions about the work, worship, or operation of the local church where you are a member? Does it seem that there are things going on that you don't understand? Are there issues floating around that trouble you? Are there times when you really don't understand the decisions that are being made? If so, join the club. We all face the kind of questions and concerns that we've just described. The big question is not, will such issues arise? The question is, how will you deal with these things when they do happen? Let us offer some do's and don'ts for handling these potential difficult situations. First, don't get angry and upset before you've gathered all the facts. 
Also, don't gossip or backbite. This doesn't help, and it's a sin, according to Proverbs 6, verse 19. Don't complain if you don't intend to get busy correcting the problem. Typically, churches have way too many fault finders and not enough problem solvers. And don't immediately assume the worst about your brethren. Too often we hear harsh, judgmental words about the elders, the preacher, or other members before the facts have all been sorted out. True love demands better than this. See 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Now here are some do's. Do ask for information. Very often, any disagreement or controversy can be quickly cleared up this way. Also, if there's a problem, go directly to the source. Speak to the one or ones involved and work for a solution. Certainly pray for wisdom in dealing with a problem, asking for God's help to do and say the right things, James 1, verse 5. And finally, never forget that maintaining sound doctrine is the highest priority, Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. But maintaining peace must also be an important goal for every member, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hi, my name is Bob Tidwell, and I want to remind you that the Virtual Bible Study provides a great opportunity to use your computer for something good. So turn off the TV and guide your family around the computer each Thursday night for the Virtual Bible Study. Quit checking your email. The commercials are over, and the virtual Bible study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. We would like you to stop checking your email, but we would like you to compose an email for us. Send us an email to questions at collegeu.com or call us at 877-381-4567. We're talking about the New Testament, how we got it. There was no doubt in the first century that the New Testament was the inspired word of God, and they began to regard it as Scripture obey it as scripture, and uh, preserve it and for, circulate it. for others. Yes. Yeah, exactly right. In fact, Jacob, I got, some, I got some notes here about some of the early non-inspired writers who quoted the inspired books. For instance, within the first 50 years after the apostles had finished their work, several writers would, would quote them. You know, when we're, when we're writing something now, Jacob, or when we're teaching, we quote scripture. In other words, I might make a point, and then I, then I use a scripture to confirm that that point is true. Right. That's what early non-inspired writers did. Early Christians would reference the inspired writings as they were writing and teaching. For instance, in the first century's bullet, I mean, uh, bulletin articles, maybe. Yeah, if they had a bulletin, they didn't have a bulletin. But, but if they had, if their, they their had version of what? their version of a bulletin, Clement of Rome, uh, around AD 95, makes reference to Matthew, Mark, Hebrews, Romans, First Timothy, Titus, First Peter, and Ephesians. Justin Martyr, who lived from 100 to 165 A.D., repeatedly cited the four Gospels and mentions Acts and Revelation. Ignatius, around A.D. 115, and Polycarp, A.D. 130, referred to various New Testament books. Uh, other writers came a little later, uh, uh, or maybe around the, the year 200 A.D. Arrhenius mentions Paul's epistles over 200 times. We have other writers such as Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian. All of those were men who were not themselves inspired, but they knew of the inspired writings and they quoted them in their writings, just like we would today. And so that gives additional confirmation of how these writings were regarded by early Christians. Every All questions about which books were really inspired, which epistles were really the word of God, all of those were settled long before there was a church council to discuss such matters in A.D. 397. You know, sometimes we hear people claim that it was the Catholic Church and some of the councils that they held that in a prejudiced way decided which books should be in the New Testament or not. That's not the case. 
Early Christians knew which writings were inspired. They treated them as such long before there was any so-called church council to discuss such matters. Basically, what happened, in fact, is that those councils just ended up confirming what was already known to be true about the sacred writings. Uh, And so we can have great confidence in the books that are included in the New Testament uh, because of how they were preserved, how they, first of all, were regarded and secondly, preserved uh, and handed down as the inspired word of God. All right, we have a question, that I'm going to pose the question for our listeners to comment on. The question has been asked in the chat room, and you or your participation in the program would be appreciated to respond to this question. Why did God allow so many different translations? This listener uh, says that uh, they use the King James Version. But the question is, why did God allow so many versions? Actually, they said they used the New King James Version. but No, no, the... Uh, Look up just a Oh, okay, bit. okay, I see it. Uh-huh. Um, so the question is, why did God allow so many different translations? There are some people who believe that the, the many of the translations, uh, other than the King James Version, are, are it'd be wrong to use them. What do you think about that? Why did God allow so many different translations? Join in on the discussion now. We'd like to hear from you. Okay, uh, let's 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 we'll throw that question out there and let it sit there for a minute. See if anybody wants to respond to the question of of translations why are there so why many are there some... which translation should we use let us know well that. uh and that may be a deeper question than we can fully answer tonight but we might want to do that at some point in the future is talk about different translations which ones are good and which ones aren't there are good ones and bad ones out there but right now just why so many why did god allow why so did many? god allow so many so we'll, we'll talk about that let's let's go to some of our emails uh, we asked the question, there are 27 books in our New Testament. Why are these? Why were these selected and others omitted? Randy in Jackson, Missouri writes, several tests were applied, including was the book written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle? Was the book widely accepted by the early church? Does it teach what Acts calls the apostles' doctrine? And is it teaching what is applicable to the whole church? I think those are good rules. In other words, was this written by someone who was acknowledged to be an apostle or closely associated with the apostles? In other words, did the the person have credibility uh, among Christians in that era? And was it accepted? Well, this is what we've been talking about quite a bit. Was it it accepted among early Christians as being an inspired work? And when when Randy says, "Does does it teach what's called the apostles' doctrine, Basically, what he's saying there is, does it conform to other inspired writings? It can't be an inspired writing if it contradicts something else we know to be an inspired the writing. The same thing we do with a mathematical uh, theory that someone wants to prove and make a, a mathematical law. We would say, can we, using other known mathematical laws, does this theory line up with what we know is true? Same thing with the scriptures. If somebody finds a book says this is inspired, we would compare it to what we know is inspired. And if there was contradiction, it couldn't be. It couldn't be inspired because God would not give us two different right. sets of instruction. I think you're exactly right, Randy. Thank you for that. And he goes on to uh, answer the second question, are there missing books of the Bible? And he says, time has shown and the changed lives of believers have shown that the accepted 27 books are the authentic and only New Testament. Uh, I think that's true. I, I think that the that the course of time has proven uh, that a lot of these others are 
like the 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 epistle of uh, Jim's email mentioned the epistle of Barnabas or the epistle of Judas or s- some such as those or the gospel of Judas. Um, while there while there have been through the years other writings that claim apostolic authorship, they they're pretty easily shown to be forgeries and. And they contradict, this is the point we're just making, they contradict the the acknowledged and genuine apostolic writings. Uh, most of them, it can be proved that most of them were written long after the apostles died. Uh, and here's a point that I think we should stress, Jacob. Scholarly attacks against the New Testament have always been in regards to the books that are included not those that are excluded. In other words, those who really are scholars in this field of study, their 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 concern is not there are a bunch of books out there that got left out and they shouldn't have been left out. We, instead of having 27, we might ought to have 68. You know, that's never been the concern of the scholars who know what they're talking about in these fields of study. It's always been the opposite. We've got 27. Maybe we only ought to have 22. Is, is what they've argued. But the fact of the matter is uh, that uh, a strong defense can be made for each of the 27 books that we find in our New Testaments today. They are, they are there not because some church council decided they ought to be there, but they're there because they were the early and recognized and accepted inspired word of God. Okay? Uh, and so, uh, again, We've got the books that deserve to be there, and they are time-proven, as Randy said. Uh, we've got an email from Joshua in Kokomo, Indiana. Joshua, thanks for participating in the virtual Bible study. He says, in answer to both these questions, the 27 books were included partially because their dating fits within the time frame of the possibility of divine inspiration. Since Jesus promised to guide his apostles into all truth, as well as Paul, John 14:26. 15, 26, 16, 30, and Acts chapter 9, we can be sure the books they wrote were of divine inspiration. However, most of the claimed lost books cannot be dated any earlier than the second century, which puts them too far outside the realm of biblical inspiration and puts their authorship into severe doubt since all the apostles were dead before the turn of the century except possibly John. Several uh, evidences indicate their post-first century date, such as manuscript evidence, the heavy influence of Gnosticism, and the fact that they are not referenced by any of the extra-biblical extra writers prior to the first century who quoted extensively from the 27 books of the Bible. Some critics claim the Gospel of Mark cannot be dated any earlier than the sex, second century, but recent manuscript ev- evidence from Qumran is indicating a very early date for John, possibly pre-70 A.D. Uh, and so he says, hope this helps, and so forth. He says, uh, I dealt with these issues recently in, in some lessons and found studying this to be very faith-building. Glad to see you're dealing with it on the program. Thank you, Joshua. I appreciate your comments, and I think they're, they're, that he's uh, thinking along the same lines of what we've been suggesting. All right, 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com are the ways you join in the discussion today. Now, what about... The way that it, the the translate the, the the Bible got to us today, because we don't have any original copies. I can't go and look at uh, the one that Paul wrote, the original copy in Paul's handwriting. How do I know that uh, what we have, as we call Scripture today, is actually accurate? Because 
They didn't have any copying machines. They didn't have fax machines to pass them around to other congregations. How do we know that we have a true copy today? I think that's a good question, Jacob, and I've tried to illustrate it this way. Let's let's say that I write an, uh, an original epistle, uh, and, and I send it to three people. Uh, I don't have access at the moment to a copy machine, and so I'm I, I send I send an epistle to three people. Well, let's back up one step. Let's do it this way. Let's say here's my here's my original epistle, and and I Greg send it to you Jacob. Let's do it this way. And I just think it's the greatest letter I've ever seen. You really like what I wrote. Yeah. And so you say, and you don't have a copy machine. Okay. And so you make a handwritten copy and send it to friend A, and one to friend B, and one to friend C. All right. Okay. Now, it just so happens that you lose the original. The original is gone. Okay. The one that I sent to you is not available. The dog ate it. Okay. Can can individual A up here? Can he have any confidence that he's got what I originally? In other words, the question here is: Is his copy what I originally wrote? How can he be sure? The original copy is gone, doesn't exist anymore. How can he be sure that what he's reading is what I originally wrote to you? Well, he can do that pretty easily. He can compare his to the one that B got and also to the one that C got. And if his is like theirs, he's got a pretty fair degree of certainty that his is an accurate rendition of what I originally I've wrote. I've had to make the same mistake three times. That's yeah. unlikely. Yeah. And actually... That, that's a very oversimplified explanation of how we have great confidence that the Bible has been conveyed down through the centuries to us accurately. Because instead of just three copies to compare, th- uh, three manuscripts or documents to compare, in, in, in the case of the New Testament, we've got thousands of copies of manuscripts, uh, 5,000 or more, um, maybe significantly more than that. But in, instead of just having three copies to compare, You've got thousands of copies to compare to, and we've got great confidence that it has come down through the ages accurately to us. We've got more manuscripts of the New Testament than we do of any, uh, secular, any, yeah, yeah. any secular writing that people have no problem accepting. No one questions whether or not uh, we have an accurate uh, translation or accurate representation of, of historical well, That's right. Documents. For instance, uh, Homer wrote the Odyssey and the Iliad. There are just a few copies of that, but nobody doubts that we have an oh, accurate. Is this really what he wrote? Uh, yeah, yeah. Nobody doubts it. Everybody agrees that we've got a good copy of what he wrote. We've got way more copies of, of the New Testament. All right, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Jacob, before we go to the break, let's add one other thing. In, in the chat room, some of them had been mentioning this. The, the question, the, the point was made about God's providence. The The, the one thing... That we that gives us additional and great confidence in the New Testament is God's providential protection of His Word. Uh, Matthew twenty four thirty five, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. That was mentioned in the chat room. First Peter one twenty five, the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word by the gospel which by the gospel is preached unto you. God, we believe that God God's not going to give the Bible and then let it fall into some kind of lost state, and we believe. Providentially, he has worked through the centuries to preserve his word. Think about the fact that there were several failed attempts through the centuries to destroy, completely destroy the Bible. They couldn't do it, even when there was a concerted effort. Most most books become lost over time just by disinterest. Uh, 
in the case of the Bible, there was a concerted effort to destroy it, and yet men could not destroy it. And so we can, we can, I believe we have great confidence when we pick up our New Testaments that we have the inspired Word of God exactly as God intended for us to have it's it. It's not beyond the realm of, of uh, imagination to think that God could preserve what he wanted to preserve. He's, he's done uh, many great things providentially throughout time. He could preserve his Word so that we could have an accurate copy today. And so it's an excellent point. We've got one more break, and we're going to the top of the hour. We need to get into the discussion, though. You, you've got well, your little, yeah, go you've got your football play up there on the board. There, you're showing how we do have an accurate copy. But some people say we've got contradictions. We need to talk about that. And we also want to try to cover that question about translations as well. Yeah, too. yeah. When there's some comments in the chat room about that, why don't you give us a call and let us know what you know about translations, or send us an email. Why did God allow so many different translations? of the Bible today. Don't go anywhere. We're going to the top of the hour right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Hello, everyone. I'm Monty, a member of the College View Church of Christ. So if you've been hearing all about the College View Church of Christ on the virtual Bible study and are interested in finding out more about the church, but you live hundreds of miles away from Columbia, Tennessee, and can't come and visit with the congregation to find out more, there's no reason to fear. After all, we live in the 21st century. Here's what you can do to find out more about the College View Church of Christ. First, why don't you check out our website while you're listening to the virtual Bible study? You'll find important information about the church there, including bulletin articles there on various subjects, and can even listen to sermons that have been presented at the College View Church in the past. Secondly, if you have questions about the church or about any Bible teaching, why don't you send an email to us and let us know how we can help. Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. That address, once again, is questions at collegeview.com. We can even have a personal Bible study with you over email if you desire. And finally, if you would rather talk with someone in person, give us a call at 931-381-4567. That's 931-381-4567. You can call this number anytime. If you don't get an answer, leave a message and we'll call you back as soon as we can. We're glad you're listening to the virtual Bible study and hope to hear from you soon. Hi, my name is Mike Holt. My wife and I, we love listening to the virtual Bible study. We're waiting to hear from you. Call in right now and join in on the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. And welcome back to the virtual Bible study tonight. And we'd like to hear from you with your questions or comments. Or if you don't have any questions or comments, just send us an email and let us know you're out there, where you're listening, how you found us on the program. And we'd like to hear from you. Let's let's deal with this translation question real quick, Jacob, and, and see if we can uh, offer some help to the one who asked, why did God allow so many translations? Well, what do you think? What are they saying in the chat room? Well, there's some discussion about bad translations. Uh, David in Cookville, Tennessee, uh, says that uh, the King James, is, by the way, I like this translation, has been updated a number of times over the years. Most would have problems reading the original King James. Version problem is not with various translations. Problem is with translators who are actually commentators. Uh, and he says, for this reason, I would not recommend certain translations. Nick adds, some are not translations, but propagations of false views, such as the New World Translation. And some are paraphrases. I think I see someone there uh, mentions the Living Bible, which is just one man's attempt to paraphrase the Bible and put it in his own words, which is not a translation at all. All right. Uh, the question of translations is important, though, because we have a, a phenomenon in the world today, and that is that language changes. 
Uh, it's changed in our lifetimes and uh, in multiple lifetimes. It changes drastically, and therefore we have to have a, a copy of the Bible that is in the modern language, and therefore we have the translations that we have today. Exactly right. You know, so words that meant something 50 years ago don't mean the same so thing. So there's an advantage to updated translations is what you're saying. Certainly. But now th- there's another factor that's driving some of this today. There's money to be made in these, okay. in these new translations. There's just been an explosion in the last 30, 40 years. There's just been an explosion of new translations because every time a new one comes out, somebody has the opportunity to publish that and make additional money. Now, some of those translations have not been very good. And so it, it behooves us to to sort of check out the process by which these translations are produced. Uh Instead of just being produced by a single individual, for instance, you want to see a translation that that has been produced by a team of language scholars, and and they're going back to the original text to translate into modern language. They're not going to translate it from another translation. They're going to go back to the original. In other words, I'm not going to take the the, the 1611 King James Version and then make a new English translation. It wouldn't be a translation. That's not a translation. That might be an update. But it wouldn't be a translation. To be a fair and accurate translation, you've got to go back to the original documents or, or to, to the original manuscripts and, and go to the original languages and actually translate them. You want to see a team of scholars doing that so that they provide checks and balances to one another. You know, one guy may miss something. Another guy picks it up. Plus, all of them will be motivated because of their, of their respect for scholarship. I, I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want these guys looking over my shoulders to think I don't know what I'm talking about. And so that that's one of the things we're looking for. There are a number of good translations out of there. The, the, the King James Version is an old standard. I think it's still good. It's not perfect, but it's very good. The New King James is a, is is an update of that, uh, very similar, but makes it a little easier to read in modern language. Of course, the American Standard Version is has long been regarded as the most literally accurate translation, perhaps, that's been, ever been made into the English language. That's been updated to the New American Standard Version. Uh, those four right there are four good ones. Uh, I, you know, there are some people who, and I don't know if the person in our chat room was suggesting that the King James Version is is the only one that we can or should use. I don't think, uh, the, the, I'm not taking it that way, but there are some there are who, some who, who teach really that. do uh, make an issue of it. I've got a set of cassette tapes that were given to me by some people who believe that you can only use the King James Version and anything else is, is pure heresy. That's right, and and that's not so. If that were the case, then the King James Version wouldn't have any any errors in it, but there are documented errors, not crucial ones, not ones that are going to cause us to lose our salvation because it teaches something in error. But the the King James Version has errors in it. Uh, I think maybe just to point out one, just to prove the point, in Acts chapter 12, uh, in verse, uh, let's see, verse 4, Acts 12, verse 4, it mentions the word Easter, Talks about the Easter holiday. That's not in the original at all. That should be the Passover. It was the Passover. It wasn't Easter, but the King James translator snuck that in there. They got an, they got an explanation <laughs> for that, but we we don't have to go into that. Well, but what I'm saying yeah, is not it, perfect. It's not perfect. That's it's exactly. very good. It's not perfect. Okay. Uh, but but I I think if we have a listener who's just wondering what version should I use, I could recommend any of those four, and, and there are others too that are good, but. King James Version, New King James Version, American Standard, New American Standard. You can't really find the American Standard to even buy it anymore, but the New American Standard is very good. Those are all known to be reliable translations of the New Testament. All right, and a listener in the chat room 
says that the instruction to test all things and hold fast to that which is good would apply to translations as well, and it certainly would. We've got to make sure that what we're studying is accurate and is a, a, a true translation into our language from the original text. All right. Dave, we're going to run out of time. Oh, uh, we, that's we, Harv who made that comment. Thank you, Harv, for giving hey, us Hey, did Harv get in the chat room? He did. Harv has had problems, and you may have had problems as well, but Harv is living proof that you can be successful at posting in the chat room. So thank you, Harv. Hey, Harv, glad that you that you were able to get in there. All right. Um, now, uh, we had one question. We're not going to have a lot of time to deal with this, but we had one question. What rule should we employ to study any alleged contradiction in the Bible? Uh, and here's what Randy wrote, and I think it's very good. He said, we should start by assuming that there cannot be a contradiction in what God gives us. It's possible man could have miscopied the text over time. We should compare it to the whole of Scripture and see if it is consistent. We should be careful about forming doctrines based on teachings that are unique and only appear once in the Bible. For instance, baptism for the dead. Uh, well, I understand what Randy's saying there. I mean, I don't think the Bible has to say something more than once to make it authoritative, but... But I understand what he's saying there. Here's some rules that I picked up someplace, and I'm not sure where I got this list of rules, but I think it's pretty good. Any alleged contradiction can be resolved if we, number one, ensure that the same person or thing is under consideration. An example of that is in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, where it says that we are saved not of works, lest any man should boast. But James chapter 2, verses 24 and 26 says that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. In order to know what one place says it's not by works, another place says it is by works. How do we resolve that? Well, we have to resolve it by understanding that different, it's, the word works is being used to reference different things there. Ephesians 2 is talking about works of merit that we could boast by. Uh, James 2 is talking about works of obedience that demonstrate our faith. It's not a contradiction. So, first of all, ensure that the same person or thing is under consideration Secondly, make sure that the same time frame is referenced. In Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made, and it was very good. Everything was very good. In Genesis 6, verse 6, it says, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. Is that a contradiction? No. Hundreds of years had transpired in between there, and the fall of man had occurred. And so you gotta you got to consider the time frame in which the statements were made. Um, then guarantee that the words are used in the same sense. Example, Matthew 11, verse 14. Jesus said, if you will receive it, this, John the Baptist, is Elijah, which was for to come. Jesus said in Matthew 11:14 that John was Elijah, who was predicted to come as his forerunner. Well, John said of himself in John chapter 1, verse 21, they asked him, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not Elijah. And so, now, is that a contradiction? Jesus said John was Elijah. John himself said he wasn't Elijah. Well, Jesus was speaking figuratively. John was speaking literally. And so, that that contradiction is resolved. We understand that they were using that terminology in a different sense. Okay. And then, number four, realize that opposites are not always contradictory. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. God is a God of love. God is love, it says in First John. But in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, it says, The Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth divorce, or hateth putting away. God loves, God hates. Is that a contradiction? No. It's not a contradiction when we understand that opposites are not always necessarily contradictory. You can both love and hate at the same time. Okay. All and right. then, then 
Finally, recognize the difference between supplemental and contradictory information. Uh, I might say, Jacob, uh, that I have three sons. And then I might tell somebody else, I have a daughter. I have one daughter. Those are not necessarily contradictory statements. They're supplemental. And in fact, in my case, it, it explains the totality of the picture. If you put both of them together, I have three sons and one daughter. But I could tell a person, yes, I have three sons. And then I could tell somebody else, I have one daughter. And they would not be contradictory statements. They would be supplemental statements. And there's kind of an interesting example of that. Uh, Jesus uh, restored sight in a miracle uh, to apparently two blind men. Matthew 20, as he was leaving Jericho, two blind men are mentioned. Mark 10 mentions only one. That's not necessarily a contradiction. He, he, at one point, it says there were two blind men. Another place, it says there were one. Well, if there was one, there were two. It's not necessarily contradictory. Mark is only emphasizing the one that Jesus primarily conversed with on that occasion. Uh, Mark says that Jesus was leaving Jericho. Luke says that he was drawing near to Jericho. There were two different places identified as Jericho. One was the ancient Old Testament city of Jericho. The other was a newer city that had been built in the Herodian period called Herodian Jericho. And so when you understand the geography of it, it's not contradictory, it's supplemental. And so that's an important rule to recognize the difference between supplemental information and contradictory information. All right, excellent uh, information there and certainly things that we need to understand. The Bible, if it is from God, cannot have contradictions. And therefore, if it looks like a contradiction... We need to make sure that we study it thoroughly to really understand what the Bible is saying. Because yeah. if and it's use some, God, those, it's some, some, some of those kind of common sense rules we were just discussing. Certainly. Absolutely. Well, we've had a good discussion tonight, Dad, on an important foundation and fundamental uh, discussion and subject. How we got the New Testament and does the Bible have contradictions? Yeah, I think we, I think we need to, to think along those lines and be ready. You know, that all goes to what we're commanded to do uh, Jacob, in First Peter 3.15, be ready to answer any man that asks you a, a reason of the hope that is in you. Uh, if someone says, why do you believe the New Testament? Why do you believe it's really from God? We can't just say, well, I always believed that. That's what my mom and dad taught me to do. We gotta, we, we've got to be honest enough to do a little so, uh, uh, searching and evaluation there and make sure we have our faith firmly planted. And that being ready to give an answer, it has two benefits. One of the most obvious benefits is that we'll be ready to tell others about the faith that we have. But perhaps even more importantly, in being ready to give an answer, it helps us to make sure that our faith is what it needs to be. As Joshua mentioned in his email, studying these types of things help us to build and fortify our faith. And so the discussion tonight has certainly been worthwhile. I hope so. All right. Thank you for your time tonight, Dad. Thanks, Jacob. And thank you for listening to the program. We hope that you benefited from the things we talked about from God's Word. We hope you'll make plans to be back here next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College 
College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.